You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So today's Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lizzie. How about we pray as we get into God's word? Father God, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word, that you have given us uh, a way of understanding your heart and your purposes for us. As we come to it tonight, please uh, give us open hearts and a willingness to listen. Lord, I pray for those who are your people, that they might respond and be inspired and built up. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who is not yet a believer in you, that tonight might be the night, that, or that tonight might be a way through which you continue to draw them to you. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I think about my journey to faith, there's a number of people in my life that I'm deeply grateful for, that I thank God for placing in my life. Uh, I think of my dad, who really taught me the faith from when I was just a little kid and was really faithful in that, very methodical and careful in doing those things. I think of the minister at the church where I was growing up, who, uh, as I came to really explore my faith and to ask questions, he was always willing to answer those questions. But I particularly think of a guy who was the pastor of another church that I went to when I was 21, a guy called Peter Owen. It was uh, Melton Presbyterian Church. uh, And I started going to this church. And I remember about a month after joining, uh, he put me, grabbed me and grabbed me into his office and said, right, tell me about your story, Luke. Tell me about your life and tell me about your faith. And at this point, uh, my faith was a very uncertain and insecure thing. I had lots of questions, and, but a lot of doubts about myself, not so much about God, but about myself. And I remember him saying to me, look, Luke, I, I, think, you, I think you're a Christian, but I, I, I don't think you really uh, trust that enough. And he said to me, what you need to understand is that you can't add to what Christ has done and you can't take away from it. And in that moment, It's like I finally understood grace, that ultimately I am saved by Jesus. I'm not saved by myself, not by my striving, not by my best efforts. I'm saved by what Jesus has done. And what he has done, I can't add to that. I can't better that. But I also can't take away from that. It's safe and it's secure. And this was the moment it just felt like everything made sense. It felt like to me he had opened the door of heaven for me. That's how I describe it to people. This was the moment where it felt like I could just walk in and be a part of God's people. I'm so thankful for him. And I I mentioned that tonight because we're going through this series, The Great Commission, and I would say that Peter in that moment was fulfilling the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission is this beautiful piece, uh, one of the, some of the most famous words that Jesus said, or they're also his last words before he ascended up into heaven, but they're, they're also you could say that they are the first words for the church. This is the, the, the work, the mission, the purpose that he is laying out for God's people. And what is it? To go and make disciples of all nations. To go and make disciples 
of all nations. That's what Peter was doing. He was seeking to make a disciple of me, helping me understand who Jesus is and to respond to him. And over this series, I want us to help think about uh, the breadth and the depth of what Jesus is saying. Next week, I want to talk about the depth. What does it mean to actually practically disciple people? What's the goal? How are we developing in those things? But today, I want to talk about the breadth. I want to think about the going. What does it mean for us to go out to make these disciples? Where do we go? Who goes? Why do we go? And how do we do this? Uh, I've got six points tonight. Don't stress, they're not as long as a normal three-point sermon, uh, each of those points. But I want to suggest six things. And the first thing is we go because Jesus deserves disciples. A disciple is someone who follows after Jesus, who embraces and accepts his authority. As we saw last week, Christ's authority is central to the whole idea of discipleship. It's in the flow of the text. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go and make disciples because I have authority, because I'm someone worthy of following. And last week, we saw that Jesus' authority comes from the fact that he is uh, God and creator, and he is saviour and king. And you see, as creator, God made people with the goal of of them living with him and for him. We have this horrible rebellion in human sin where we live for ourselves rather than for him, but God in Jesus came to change that, came to bring a people to himself who would live under his rule. That's what a disciple is, someone who acknowledges the authority of Jesus and follows him, follows him as God, the sovereign ruler of all things, follows him and respects him as creator, recognizing that he knows what's best for us because he designed us and so we can trust his will. It also means acknowledging his authority as saviour, saying, look, I'm sorry that I haven't responded to you, that I've walked away from you, but thank you that you came to die for me, to bring me home. And then following him as king, saying, right, you have the authority to rule my life. I'm going to follow after your directions. And when people do that, when people, when someone becomes a disciple, God also invites them to become a part of his work in the world, to, to go and make disciples of all people, to expand his kingdom. Remember what we said last week, that the kingdom of God is not so much a physical reality, but it's more of a spiritual and relational reality. As Kevin DeYoung puts it, it exists where knees and hearts bow to the king and submit to him. And so a disciple uh, is allowing Jesus to reign in their life and they want to see that expand throughout the world. They want to see more and more people respond to Jesus. John Piper sums it up really quite nicely. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Essentially, he's saying God deserves worship. Jesus deserves disciples. And so we, we see that that's not happening and so we get out there to make it happen. Trusting God to do that. We make disciples because Jesus deserves disciples. And secondly, we go because people need it. Have you ever had those, one of those experiences where you, you realise the stakes, you realise the realities of heaven and hell, of life and death and eternity? Uh, a while ago, I was walking down Watton Street in Werribee and it just struck me that of all these people that I could see around me, there was probably hardly any Christians. 
There's people from other religions and so on. But there were very few people who were following Jesus. And it struck me the, the danger of that, how big and how high the stakes are. This is an uncomfortable uh, thing to think about. But the Bible tells us that all humans naturally defy God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, Romans 3. And therefore, we all face judgment before God. Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. And God makes it clear in the scriptures that that judgment ultimately is, is hell, an eternity away from God, receiving the justice that uh, justice demands. But the Bible also makes it clear that there is a way out, there is a way of salvation, that Jesus has come to take on our sin and to absorb God's justice, to divert it away from us and onto himself. And all we need to do is to respond to that in faith, to come and confess our need for him and then to trust him. But we must come to Jesus. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among which uh, men uh, are given among men by which we must be saved. So that we have this incredibly significant and important reality that we're all facing this, but there is a way out. And yet so many people don't know this. People you see every day, your family, your friends, loved ones, colleagues, neighbours, people we pass on the street, multitudes of people not in a relationship with God and then heading towards an eternity away from him. This is a distressing thought. We'd much rather just chill out and just watch TV or something, but that sounds so ridiculous when you consider the stakes. So we need to think about it. We need to feel the need and to hurt because of the need. Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary to China who founded the China Inland Mission, says, would that God would make hell so real to us that we cannot rest, heaven so real that we must have men there, Christ so real that our supreme motive and aim shall be to make the man of sorrows the man of joy by the conversion of him to him of many. Or Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. You feel the desperation that he has here. He feels the stakes. He feels the need. And so he goes out with the gospel. Or perhaps it's best to hear this from someone who's not a Christian. Uh, Penn Gillette is a comedian and a magician. He's the big guy who makes up half of the Penn and Teller uh, group, if you've seen him on TV. Uh, he's a proud atheist. But in a famous YouTube video a number of years ago, he criticised Christians who didn't proselytise, who, who wouldn't tell people about Jesus. He says, I, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, but that's not okay, he says. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytise? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? 
I love how the Apostle Paul explains it. Salvation is really quite simple. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But, he says, before people can call on Jesus, they have to have heard about him. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And that's our task. It's our job to tell the good news. As Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If you're a believer, if you're a disciple, you have the life jacket. There's a need out there. So we need to go to give out the life jacket. And thirdly, we go because we are all sent You see, I've kind of talked about how we need to do this, but a lot of us might be feeling like, oh, I just don't know if I can. I don't know if I'm able to do that. It's all intimidating. Uh, When I was growing up, I went to a Christian school and I always remember one day, uh, one of the teachers at school, there was a big assembly and there was announced that this guy was uh, going to Pakistan to be a missionary. He's switching from being a teacher to being a missionary and we all farewelled him and so on. And this guy had this incredible journey. He uh, ministered for a number of years in Pakistan, then some other Muslim countries, Syria, I think, and Jordan, got thrown out of one or two countries, persecuted. He's now returned to uh, Melbourne and has got an amazing ministry with Muslims here, uh, debating people in public and so on, like public events and all of this stuff. Has an extraordinary mission. And I look at him and I just think, wow, that, that guy is like a superhero. Like he just seems to know so much and have such an incredible drive and a passion for God. His name's Bernie Power. Look him up. Fantastic ministry. And maybe when you were growing up, you felt the same. Even now, you feel like there's these missionaries who are like these superheroes, like the X-Men of the Christian world. And maybe growing up, you had like their little pictures posted on the fridge and, and so on. And like superheroes, they have a costume, like sandals and socks and stuff. And they always look a bit daggy. But, but they've got this incredible drive. And you think, okay, well, they're the people that Jesus was giving the Great Commission to. They're the ones who are capable. It's the evangelists, it's the missionaries. Even just today, someone brought a friend and said, look, this guy doesn't know Jesus. Can, can you tell him the gospel? We imagine that there's someone else who can do it. But actually, I want to suggest tonight that we can all do it, that if you're a disciple of God, Jesus has sent all of us out to do this work. As one writer puts it, Missions, after all, is simply this. Every heart with Christ is a missionary and every heart without Christ is a mission field. Once we've submitted to him, we're part of his kingdom, then we're part of his kingdom work. Now, of course, there are some people who are especially gifted for this task. Paul talks about those who have the gift of evangelism. Now, perhaps they have a a particular ability when they're listening to someone to kind of get what's going on and to understand and to pull out the threads and to to speak into what that person might be needing with a a clarity and a boldness. God particularly uses them. But, But don't kind of get overwhelmed by that. You see, often I think we imagine that, oh, I just don't know enough. I don't know enough theology. I wouldn't be able to answer that hard question that someone asked me. Or I'm not good enough. Like, uh, 
if people knew what I was like or there's something in my life that I'm embarrassed by. And so we feel like we rule ourselves out of this task. Let me say a couple of things here. First of all, if, if you feel like you're not good enough, well, I mean, if there might be something in your life that you need to deal with, I, I understand that. It's very hard for us to confront someone else with the Lordship of Christ if we're not responding to him as Lord. And if you're dating a non-Christian and you want them to come to faith, but you're, you're sleeping with them, it's unlikely that they will because they won't see that your life, your faith is compelling. If you're telling your mates how great Jesus is, but then getting drunk every weekend with them, they're going to wonder what's the difference about Jesus? What, what's the point of following him? How does he change your life? See, sometimes our life does discredit our witness. So we need to deal with that. But if you are dealing with that, if you're living as a disciple, if you're humbly trying to walk with him, then you're ready. You're ready to go because Jesus is sending you. I mean, just think about the context of the Great Commission. Who is Jesus speaking to? Well, he's speaking to his disciples. And what were they like? I mean, when we read the Gospels, we see that these guys didn't have it all together. They were often petty, uh, selfish, lacking in faith, slow to understand. I mean, just six weeks before Jesus sends them out with the Great Commission, they'd all deserted Jesus. And still Jesus sends them out. Because Jesus loves to work through flawed people. See, what is the gospel message? That sinners who deserve nothing have received everything because of God's love and grace. And the people best qualified to talk about that are the people who feel it the most. You think about Paul, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. And there's this weird thing how the more mature someone is in their faith, the more they feel their sin, but also the more they feel God's grace. That's what we do when we go. We talk about Jesus. We tell the story of his life. And that's what I'd say if you don't feel like you know enough. If you know Jesus, you do know enough because you know the most important thing. Of course, there's so much more to learn. I understand that. We're, we're studying an infinite God. There's always more for us to learn, but as long as you know Jesus as God and creator and saviour and as king, you know the most important thing. Yeah, I had a friend who was um, uh, really into apologetics and like really hardcore philosophical apologetics. So There's a guy called uh, William Lane Craig. Some of you will have heard of him. Uh, he's got this really hardcore kind of ministry. And look, there's some real strengths in this, but I remember my mate, uh, he, was, he was applying to set up a local chapter of this ministry and he showed me like the questions that he had to answer to qualify to the application course, basically. And I didn't even understand the questions, let alone know how to answer them. And it struck me that this was, that's like, I, I kind of realised that I don't need to understand all of that stuff. What's really most important is to be able to speak of Jesus. That's the most compelling witness. There's very few people that have been argued into heaven, debated into heaven, because really what's underneath so many of those questions is another question. People might ask you questions, but the real important questions are the ones that Jesus is asking them. Are you willing to accept that I'm your creator? Are you willing to allow me to be Lord of your life? That's the real question that people are avoiding. And if you have answered that question, 
If you have responded to Jesus, then you can ask those questions of others. So talk about Jesus. Tell people about his goodness, his love, his beauty, his power. Tell them about what life was like before you knew him and how life has changed since. Tell them about what life is like when it's hard and how you call out to Jesus. And sometimes it doesn't feel like he's there, but then he turns up. And tell them how you celebrate life with him. Tell them about Jesus. That's the most compelling witness. Because we have good news, right? We believe that there is a reason for everything around us, that there is a creator behind all of this. We believe that there is someone to call out to who will listen someone that we can thank and someone that we can ask questions of. And we believe that that great being, that Jesus came into this world to save us, that he gave up his life for us and that he's placed his spirit within us so that we can become like him. That is good news. So tell people that. I had a wonderful experience of this just the other day uh, Someone within our church, I was meeting up with him and uh, he's been coming along to our church for probably a year, uh, grew up in a Catholic church and so on, but it never kind of it had sort of really settled in his heart or his life, but he's really been growing in his time with us. And uh, particularly, I think over the last month, I'd suggested to him, oh, why don't you read John over Christmas? He came back, he totally read it. He'd read Philippians, he'd been watching videos and all this stuff. And it feels like it's really sunk into his heart. And he said to me, look, in the past, uh, people would kind of avoid me sometimes. I was sort of known as an angry guy. I'd never smile. But now I can't help but smile. I'm constantly smiling. I'm constantly celebrating what Jesus is doing in my life. He feels it. That is a compelling witness. We have good news. If we trust Jesus, then Jesus is sending us out bearing and carrying a witness to him. So we go because Jesus deserves disciples, because there is a need and because Jesus has sent us all. And, and when we go, I want to suggest that we go across the world and across the street. The Joshua Project is a research initiative that seeks to clarify from their website the unfinished task of the Great Commission by highlighting unreached people groups. They basically define an unreached group as uh, a people group that basically is less than 2% Christian, can't evangelise, they don't have Indigenous evangelising. Uh, they estimate that there's about 17,500 people groups throughout the world and that almost half of these are as yet unreached. That's 42% of the world's population, 3.3 billion people in places like Burma, India, uh, Yemen, closer to us in Indonesia and so on. Who will reach these people? Who will go and make disciples of these nations? You see, Jesus imagines a time where people from every tribe and tongue and people and language will gather around the throne. Who will go out and do that work? It may well be you. You might be here today and God is working within your heart to, to drive you to this, to inspire you to do this. We've had people within our church do this, the Griffians who were in Japan for a number of years and uh, Naomi who's recently come back from Italy. But let's be honest, 
while some people may go overseas, it's most likely that many of us will stay here. And so if we're here, I want to suggest that we still need to go, but maybe it's just to go across the street. See, when I was 18, I felt convicted that I needed to be a missionary. Uh, To be honest, I really didn't want to be. I wasn't ready to be. But I mention it now because I thought being a missionary meant going overseas, probably to somewhere really hot and dusty and hard. That was my imagination. And yes, people overseas do need Jesus, but so do the people in your life. So do the people across the street. And you may be the very best person to tell them. You see, as I understand it, a missionary's task is to know the culture that they've been placed in, to love that culture, and then to present the gospel, helping people see the relevance and the significance of God's truth in their life and in their world. And who better to do that with the people around you? See, you love them, you care for them, you understand the messages that the culture is saying to them because it's saying the same to you as well. And here, as we seek to understand and unpack the truth, we can together work out how to show God's truth and its relevance in their lives. So go. Go across the street. Go across the office. Go across the change rooms with your footy team. Go across the classroom, wherever you're placed. Go to those people around you. Really, what I'm saying is find your mission field. Where is the place that God has laid on your heart, the people that you most care about, the people that you hurt for them? Go to them. And if it helps, maybe you can think of yourself as the chaplain of your mission field. Now think about the role of a chaplain in a school or a sports club or whatever. Their role basically is to build community and connections. It's to... uh, build relationships with people to support them, and then uh, if something goes wrong and things are difficult, to, to be there. It's a lot of work. It can sort of feel very incremental. Perhaps uh, it feels like you're not getting far, but when something really goes wrong, you're the person that someone turns to. Be that person in your context. So when someone shares that they've lost their job or their kids have gone off the rails or that they've got cancer, or their marriage is broken, whatever it is, you are the person who's there. You are the person that they turn to. And when they turn to you, turn their eyes to their creator. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose, for answers. As a believer, you have some of those answers because you know your creator, and he's also their creator. So point them to God. So what's your mission field? Uh, for me and my wife, Ivana, our mission field really, I think, is our, is our neighbours. It's always been our passion uh, throughout our marriage. Wherever we've lived, we've sought to be on mission with the people that we live around, seeking to build connections and so on. It's kind of been a mixed bag. One house we lived in, it was amazing. We moved in, we got to know everyone really quickly, we, through a block party to try and get to know everyone and, uh, and we built relationships with them and uh, some significant moments. We became really good friends with the people next door. Uh, the woman was kind of a lapsed Christian. Uh, her husband was an atheist. We had great conversations with them. Uh, across the street, uh, 
one of the, uh, the guy uh, passed away, Mr. Silioma, and uh, really sad, but we were able to walk alongside them in that. And in the neighborhood around, we got really close with the other parents from the kinder group. Um, I always remember one woman, her husband uh, committed suicide and, and, and she turned to Ivana because Ivana was the chaplain in her life. So it was a really profound season for us. Uh, when we moved on from there, it was much harder. We had another house where it just sort of didn't work. The f- neighbours weren't super friendly. It didn't matter what we did. And then our other neighbours, well, our cat used to bully their dog, uh, which made it a bit awkward. Um, so we were kind of, 18 months ago when we moved again, we were really praying that God would give us uh, a fresh mission field and really uh, open it up for us, give us neighbours. And he gave us more than that. He gave us a street. Uh, we live in a place called Burlington Close. And uh, when we moved in, it wasn't us who threw the block party. It was everyone else for us, which was so wonderful. And this was still in lockdown, so everyone's sort of creeping out from their driveways, ready to dash back if the police came. Um, <laughs> and uh, we have like a Facebook group, uh, our whole street. And so there's Gordon who posts the rainfall tallies and uh, we talk about the magpies. They're all become everyone's friends. If you, if you treat them nicely, they won't treat you badly. That's what I've learnt. Uh, you know, Ivana put up bows and all the trees down the street for Christmas and so on. And it's a beautiful thing. And in the midst of this, we're, we're trying to build deeper relationships. Uh, I, I was helping Colin across the street with some firewood and we're having a cuppa afterwards and he asked me what I thought about homosexuality and Christianity and yeah, nice, easy conversation, a bit of an icebreaker there. Uh, but then I'm also thinking about Bevan, who's across the street. He's now being diagnosed with stage four cancer and, you know, it's, it's really heartbreaking. I know his family now, his kids and so on. And um, he's, he's an older guy, so I know his grandkids as well. And, and I'm praying that we'll be able to speak into this moment. We'll be the chaplains of this street. And I love these people. You know, when I was 18 and I thought I had to go out on mission, I was doing it with the wrong understanding. It was just out of conscience. I didn't have this great love for the people in Africa or something like that. But I have a love here for these people in my life. And I think that's how God works it. He gives us a passion, a hurt, a need for the people around us, a desire to see them know God. So go to those people. Jesus is bringing all people to him from across the world and across the street. So be a part of his work. And then fifthly, go trusting God. See, I can tell you that we should go out there and do all of this stuff, but you'll be asking, will this actually work? See, I mean, let me kind of rhetorically, let let me ask, how many of us have told someone the gospel and seen them respond on the spot? I'm going to guess not many. And it's easy for us to be discouraged, to wonder if that ever happens, and to forget that it happened to us, but... But to wonder, how does that ever, does God actually keep making Christians? Is is that a thing anymore? Well, God is at work. It's overwhelming, for instance, to hear about the three billion people who haven't heard about him. But God is on the move 
In Kenya, for instance, the country has grown enormously. Uh, in the mid-1960s, there was 4 million Christians. Now it's estimated that there's 40 million. Uh, Christianity reached the African country of Uganda at the start of the 20th century. It's now the dominant religion, 50% Protestant. Uh, in South Korea, Christians made up just 1% of the population in 1900. In 2010, it was estimated to be 29%. God is on the move out there. And so you can trust that he's also on the move in your life, in the people around you. So trust that and be patient. I read an interesting stat recently that uh, they reckon, someone, I don't know how they did this, but someone reckons uh, that most people, before they come to faith, they will have had 32 conversations about faith. Uh, the Gideon's Bible Society also suggests a lower number, like seven, but both suggest that it takes a while. There's a number of conversations before someone comes to receive Jesus. And that helps, right? See, maybe when you told your friend the gospel, you were like the third person, or the fifth person, or the 31st, oh, I just missed out, whatever it was. But it takes time. I mean, think about your own life. I heard the gospel hundreds of times before I responded. But then one day I heard it. I really heard it because God had prepared me. God is at work. This is the beauty of predestination. It's a scary doctrine for lots of people, but actually it's a wonderful thought that God is at work before the foundations of the world to bring people to himself. He's preparing them in crazy ways. I heard this wonderful story. Uh, it sounds incredible, but I, I heard that it was true, so I'm going to say it. Uh, I heard about this guy in Sydney who was going to uni and he said that it felt like every day he's talked to a different Christian on the bus. He started the year as like an atheist, very aggressive and angry and uh, very resistant to Christianity. But every day he'd have these conversations and it, it softened him and it started to break him open until finally he came to faith. And he said, I can't wait till I get to heaven because there'll be all of these people who come up and say, wow, you're here. Yeah, I'd never thought you were going to be here. Yeah, maybe there's people in your life that you've spoken to and you're like, ah, oh, that did nothing. But it did do something. God was working in it. Trust God to do his work. Go because he is sending us and he is opening and preparing the way. And finally, I want to say, go now. Uh, I've been reading some Mark Sayers books uh, recently. Mark Sayers is a remarkable bloke, uh, Melbourne uh, writer and pastor, uh, but he's got this global reputation now. He's something of a prophet in the sense that he's incredibly capable at kind of understanding the culture and this moment that we're living in, this secular moment that we're living in, and then speaking God's truth into that. In one of his books, Disappearing Church, he talks about the long, slow decline of the church and the, the growth of what he calls the secular progressive ideal. Uh, you, you kind of know this, it's, it's the thought all around us that we don't need religion, we're kind of outgrown religion, that we are self-sufficient as humans, that we have science and we have technology and uh, we have tolerance and global human values and things like that and so we will just continue to progress. The world will get richer and more prosperous uh, there'll be uh, equality among people and so on. Everything is improving. 
that's kind of the dominant idea, that the, the, the secular world works. But in his sequel to that book, Reappearing Church, he makes the point that this secular vision is actually very fragile and vulnerable. It looks impressive, but it's not hitting its mark. He writes, the promises of our cultural and political elites that things will get better are falling flat. We have endless opportunities to pursue pleasure and our desires, yet so many of us are miserable and anxious. We, can't traverse, we can traverse geography, time and space, yet loneliness is growing. Silicon Valley's promises that a world connected by social media will be a better, more tolerant world now look ridiculous. The assurances that a globalised world will be a fairer, more peaceful and prosperous place seem shaky. These failed promises are fueling a growing sense of dissatisfaction, a desire to see things change and a hunger for a vision of personal and social life in which humans flourish. And he says, all of this stuff, it's built up and it's set up all perfect, but one little thing could break it. That book came out in 2019, just before COVID. And you think about what we've seen and experienced the last two years has seen a dramatic convulsion in our world where everything has been thrown up in the air, like a whole bunch of scrabble pieces, and we're yet to put it all together. We don't yet know how to make meaning out of these letters that are all over the place. We haven't got the words to describe it. In this moment, we can bring God See, I think in our culture and in Australia right now, there is this restlessness and anxiety. There's these really primal emotions that we've been living with for so long. Fear, fear of death that people have. There's anger and frustration. There's a longing for all of this to be over, a desperate seeking for normality for what life used to be like. We're, we're constantly craving that. This summer was supposed to be all of that, and yet here we are in masks, longing for life to be what we want it to be, longing for life to be as it was promised to us, that life would be amazing because science has got all of this sorted out and our whole world is all together. I mean, the biggest public health crisis in 100 years hasn't brought us together. It's actually just revealed our divisions and our separations all over the place. It doesn't matter what your political view is or anything like that. We're seeing division and anger, frustration and anxiety and a yearning, a yearning for meaning and life and joy and comfort and peace. That's what people are craving. And in this moment, we get to bring God. This is an incredible moment. Up to now, maybe it's been a really hard moment. You know, it felt like when, when everything uh, fell apart in 2020, like, ah, oh, this will be the moment where everyone comes and bangs down the door of our church. Ah, oh, the church is closed. They'll bang down the door of Zoom, whatever it is. We thought this would be the moment where everyone would come, and they didn't. They just ended up making sourdough and watching Netflix. And we found it hard too, didn't we? We were so tired. We were so frustrated. Lockdown six, I just wanted to survive that thing. I wasn't thinking big vision at that point. But now we have this moment 
as it reopens, as people crave life. We have the moment in this opportunity to show them who Jesus is. So go now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the wonderful news that you made us, that even though we sin and fall away from you and defy you, you came to reclaim us, that Jesus, you died for us because you love us. Lord, you have now entrusted us with the work of uh, making disciples. Help us to go because you deserve it, to go because there is such a great need around us, to go because we are all sent. May we know your story so profoundly, know you and love you, that we can't help but celebrate you. Help us as we go across the world or across the street. Help us to go trusting you and bless us as we go now. Give us opportunities today, this week, to share the truth, to see people respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.